Hello, I'm Adam Kaufman. Welcome to the Up To Podcast. Coming out of our first season of the Up To Podcast, it became clear to me that our show with successful business owner and power broker, Umberto Fidelli, resonated with so many of you. I heard from a lot of listeners. Some came up to me who loved Umberto's rare combination of genuine authenticity in the rarefied world of deal-making and high-level access and investing. It left me wanting more. It left our listeners wanting more too. So today we invite him back for part two of our special mini-series. Welcome back to the studio, Umberto. Thanks for having me in. Later, I'm going to ask you something, but I want to plant the seed now. Uh, Not to answer it, but just to get our listeners uh, intrigued by it. What should the 30-year-old listener be thinking about as she or he is just now starting to invest, maybe just now finishing off their student loans? A lot of our listeners are in that demographic. So just plant that seed with you and with them for now, and we'll get to that a little bit later. I think you told me at one point that you've invested in close to 400 public companies over time, not current holdings, but 400 in and out of companies. How many must you look at to make a decision to buy 400 times? I start every morning very early, as you know, typically around three. Sometimes I may sleep in the 3.30 or quarter four, sometimes 2.30. so lazy. And I read and I study Every day I look at dozens of ideas, dozens, every day. Are you doing this online or what do you read? Are you reading the Wall Street Journal or newsletters that you subscribe to? Like, how are you even getting this information? Yes, 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 yes. So, so I have two iPads. So, so I have my large iPad and I, and, I, and I start and I read Barron's and I read the Wall Street Journal. And then I have various other things that I subscribe to. I follow 13 Fs. I follow 13 Fs of probably 100 of the greatest investors that we think. And we look at everything they're buying, which they have to report every quarter. And mm-hmm. look at what... what, what you know, 13 Fs, that's a federal filing? Yes. So they have to, if you have over 150 million of assets, you have to, and, and you're running money, you have to, you know, file. Disclose it, right. Yeah. So so when, when a bunch of very successful, smart investors are buying things, I look at, I don't necessarily buy because they're buying. Right. But they're saying, but why are they buying these things? Let's look at reasons. So, and, and then we have all kind of sites we look at. We read research from the various investment firms. We subscribe to some research that we read. Again, thinking about my listeners, of, let me interrupt if you don't mind. What should the beginning investor read? Are there free sites or free newsletters you'd recommend? Not everyone's going to read 13 Fs. I think if to start off... The Motley Fool. Yeah, I, I get I get all their services, right? And, and some people say, because they have like kind of a funny Whimsical. name. Yeah. But they have hundreds of employees. They have little tidbits, and they really do a lot more on growth companies. So we have all their materials. I, I we, love that site. We, we, we look at them. So we subscribe to them. That's one source. I would say Wall Street Journal would be one and Barron's. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that you have to read, I think. Yeah, I agree. Looking at, you know, just like Yahoo, where you're just looking at business news and you're okay. looking at things like that that's going on. And the ratings are on those sites, like Morningstar ratings of stocks. I look, I look at Morningstar. I look I look at uh, Value Line. I, I look at Seeking Alpha Pro. So, you know, again, I'm just reading a lot of different things. Right. And then you have to look, curate and decide. But, but I look at Forbes and, you know, and I look at various business articles. But mm-hmm. if you had to start with two, I would say Wall Street Journal and Barron's. I agree. Wall Street Journal especially. Even the left column alone of the front page, if you only have like 10 minutes, that's a great place to start. But I look at that at, um, Guru Focus, and it follows you know all these great investors. I look at something called Inside Monkey. Mm, I don't know that one. Inside Monkey. Yeah, I look, but I read reports from friends of mine from Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and, right. and look at UBS and Merrill Lynch. And, and then also some people, uh, for instance, there's a great company called Gardner 
uh, who who has thousands and thousands of of, of technology users, mm-hmm. and they are tremendous in writing about technology. Right. right. Now it's kind of complicated. Collection of experts. They're incredible. Right. Mm-hmm. Their stuff is incredible. But then 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 there's uh, you know uh, people that do the same thing in the real estate industry, you know, and and so so you know because some people don't like to buy. Uh, or read research from someone that's in the investment business because they figured, all right, they conflicted. Yeah, they conflicted. Because they do business and they cover those, and 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 so I like to read all of them as much as I can read about a company. Yes. So I like to be I like to be very very eclectic and and very open minded and very liberal in reading ideas, and even sometimes I've also learned, for instance, how not to treat somebody by someone who I didn't like how they treated someone. And sometimes you get an idea from somebody that that maybe you know isn't somebody you necessarily do business with or do things with, but they may know an industry really well. Absolutely, they may know a company really well. I like blending industry experts, students of the industry, and students of the business. So I'll call a friend of mine who is a CEO of a company that's in a certain field. So my my business partner Marty Adams who. You know, started with two he's, branches. He's a banker, right? Yeah, he started with two branches in a little town called Salineville, Ohio. Where he's a great guy, and he, he built the bank up to about $18 billion. About 12 years ago, he sold the bank for $3.5 billion. It was a public company. But he's a student of the industry and a student of the business. So I like to talk to industry experts that are operators. Sure. And I like to blend that with investment analytic research. I like both. I like the guys who are the operators because they know the business as an operator. They know every aspect. So you've mentioned, Umberto, seeking out experts in a field, you're in this rarefied world of knowing a lot of public company CEOs. I know a few, but you know many. And when is it like okay to talk to them about stocks and not okay? Like, it's an honest question. Like, Well, remember now, they know. So if you cross the line because you don't know. It's their responsibility. Well, you can't act. If they happen to give you something that they shouldn't, which they probably won't. Right. You can't act on it. You can't ask them, so what company are you buying now? You can't ask them that. But you can talk to them about how are things going in your industry? What do you see? Okay. How's your business doing? Right. They just can't give you anything they're not giving to everybody. Okay. So, so, so if it's in their end report and they're talking about items, you know, they they can't talk about, hey, how are your earnings going to be next quarter when you report? So, so they can't give you anything that is not public and is not uh, not open. But, but I talk to a lot of people who are running private businesses. Mm, I actually talk me to too. way more private businesses than I do public businesses, and I talk to them because they're still still in the industry. So even though that we bought some REITs. You know, real estate investment trust. I talk to friends of mine that are in the real estate business that are running private companies. The same principles are going on there. Yeah, I do that with autonomy and autonomous vehicles, like which hardware companies are serving that new, still private industry mostly. I, I talk to probably 90% of the people I talk to are not from the public sector. They're, they're from the private sector. Mm, I didn't, okay, I didn't realize it was that high. Yes, the majority. But I like good operators, students of the industry, students of the business. They really know the business inside and out. They know what's going on. You mentioned a minute ago real estate. Uh, do you make investments in private real estate buildings or REITs or funds, any any real estate? Near? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. So I have another theory that I call coach theory. Coach theory, okay. If I don't know the sport which would be, let's say... Venture capital for you. Venture capital, I don't know at all. So when there's a field I don't know, then I say, okay, I need to co-invest. Mm-hmm. So to me, co-invest or coach theories, I find somebody that has incredible integrity first. 
Nothing else, man. I don't care how smart someone is if they can't be trusted, right? Absolutely. After integrity, do they have a proven track record in that niche or in that field? So track record is important to track you. Track record in that particular niche or field mm-hmm. and integrity. Mm-hmm. And then I'll invest in a deal with them or in their fund or in their shopping center or their apartment sure. or in private equity. Mm-hmm. So there I'm a passive investor. So the power of partnering, again, lesson for our listeners is vital when you're stepping beyond your comfort zone of knowledge. Another thing we did well, other than fear and uncertainty, the created volatility and taking advantage of the real problem, is it a short-term problem, is it a long-term problem? You know, in, are you getting painted with the same brush and it's different than everybody else is getting painted with the same brush? It's the exception, All right? We did that fairly well. We were pretty lucky with that. The other thing we did fairly well that I didn't realize, I wasn't good at very much. Hmm. But I didn't realize how good I was at knowing who was good and it was almost never me. So now I feel like I'm going back to school and say, Adam's really good at calculus. So I'm going to ride his calculus coattails. That'd be a different Adam. Maybe Adam would be good in English. But I see your point. But so then what happens is then I sit there and say, this person has an incredible track record. They have high integrity. They have a lot of experience. And and they've done this super successful. Like my good friend Stuart Cole at Riverside. I knew you were going to say him. Riverside. 600 companies. companies. They had 600 companies. Their returns have been incredible. Up to 8 billion now under management, I think. Um, More. Right. I think they're over eight and just under nine. Wow. And and, and probably seven or eight platforms, different industries like healthcare, business Mm -hmm. services, education, franchise, right? So they have different areas, but they have a track record, right? They look at four to 5,000 deals a year. And they maybe buy 50 to 75 companies. So they have a track record. They're super successful. They have a great culture. They have a great process. I say they are best in class and first class. We ride their coattails. Now we're passive investors. We're not picking the stocks there. We're picking the coach. They're the coach. They're picking the players, which are the investments. So why do you like, and I'm glad you like private equity, but why can't you make the leap further into risk in venture capital, my, my favorite asset class? Uh, uh, sure, why? <clears throat> so if you look at the last 50 years, and we're just studying investments, which we do, we've studied tens of tens of thousands of pages, tens of thousands of hours, the number one performing asset class by far has been private equity. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm reluctant to invest in venture capital is it's much riskier because it's much earlier. It now definitely the, is. Now, the potential returns is astronomic, but when I've looked at it, on average, there's more risk for less return, and in, in private equity, there's been better returns for less risk because they're buying something that's already successful, already has a track record, and they're just taking it to the next level. Well, that's true. It's, it's de-risked once it makes it, a company makes it to the private equity stage of growth. You're right about that. Well, now, the right venture capital could blow things away, but what happens Because a lot of these companies you love and that you've talked about, you know, started as venture-backed, you know, privately owned startups. But I'm just, I'm horrible at it. So when I look at something, they all look good. I can't tell. (laughs) But when I see something that already has a track record, it's already up and going, right? And it's already moving, right? So, So Stuart buys smaller companies. And they just take them to the next level, make them bigger and better and sell them for more money. They're Stuart, already successful. Stuart Cole from Riverside. Riverside, right. right? Mm-hmm. So their niche is they're already investing in right. successful companies. Right. These aren't turnarounds. These aren't brand new. Right. They're, they're just taking something and then taking it bigger, better. And, and that's easier, not easy. Right. But it's easier to, with venture, I'm looking at it, I can't tell. Most of them don't work. Now, the guys that know what they're doing can make an enormous amount of money, but it's much riskier. 
and you have to know what you're doing more. Right. So I've never, I'm, I'm not saying I never will, but I've never invested in venture. I mean, I can understand why you feel that way. I just wanted to hear Statistically, more. Statistically, so many fail. Right. And, and, and so so private equity, I feel more comfortable with. Uh, we're in a number of private equity deals, but but I like public the best. I, yeah, I can tell. Uh, private equity's had the best performance, but but I can't do private equity by myself. Let's go back to public, and, and thanks for talking about venture capital. I'll keep working on you on the okay. VC side. But regarding the public uh, companies, does it matter to you after 35, 39 years of, of being a professional and being an investor who is in the White House or what tone Congress is speaking as you look at companies? Do you look at all about like the national political landscape when looking at industries or companies? I think you need to look at macro just because you need to look at them because to say nothing's not in a vacuum, so everything affects everything, right? Right. So, yes, I look at it, but but long-term, if you're going to invest for the long-term, you're going to have different presidents, different House, different right. Congress. So long-term, I would say, for me, it's less important. Now, if you're buying... If you're buying treasury bills or you're buying currencies or you're doing things where you're timing the markets and you're doing, there's other people who are doing different things, then that's very important. But if you're looking at individual businesses and saying, is this a good business that long term Mm -hmm. is going to do very, very well? But no, you can't be ignorant in saying it doesn't matter because they can enact the law and say credit cards are illegal. They're not doing that. And all of a sudden, they can put a business out of business. Right. So to ignore— They could say cryptocurrency is illegal. And think of what that would do to a lot of companies we all know about. They they could. So so to me, you have to look at all the items. And so that's why you have to—you know, at our company, at our our closely held small company, we ask people to have three commitments. People, your employees, you mean? Yes, our associates. We ask them to be proactive, not reactive. Mm-hmm. We ask them to be committed to lifelong learning, your business, your industry, your community, your clients' businesses, you know, business, uh, right? you know, constantly have that, that, that desire to learn, and to be cooperative, collegial, congenial, and collaborative with your colleague. And I suspect you have long tenure among your employees. We do. We have a lot of people who have been around a long time. And they stay with you? Many, most. Every once in a while, somebody retires. Every once in a while, somebody leaves or something happens. But for the most part, we then look for three things when we hire. I call them the three I's. Number one, integrity. How do you gauge integrity when you're interviewing somebody? I've had to hire a lot of people over the years, and that's hard to measure. It's it's hard to measure. I think the best way to gauge integrity is doing deep, deep dives on people and, and see how they've lived. And if you don't do that extensively. Or do you talk to others who know the candidate? You have to do extensive because typically they give you names of their friends or right, people. Right, right. But integrity is by far and the most important thing. And then you know, one of our mutual friends, excuse me, Bill Rowley, taught me when looking at candidates. He was tough, but he was right with a lot of his toughness. He said, don't call the person who's first on the reference list. Call the fourth person. <laughs> I would say call the person who's not even on the list. Yeah, right. That's right. even better because they're not going to give you any bad names, right? Or good people <laughs> right. like them. But, but integrity is one. Intelligence. There's different type of intelligence. Experience, knowledge, right? And then intensity to get things done. We call those the three I's, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, we want people to have the three, the three so commitments. intensity, integrity. What was the middle one? Intelligence. Intelligence. Ironically, I couldn't remember the intelligence word. But the first is the first is integrity. First is integrity. Absolutely. And then there's different types of intelligence. So so remember, you're just not, you know, somebody may not necessarily have one type of intelligence. 
There's those who have emotional intelligence, right. right? Just like I said, investments, there's two parts. There's art and there's science. The science is doing the research, knowing how to read the annual reports, digging through different filings. And, and I'm not very good at the science part because I have the attention span of a flea. You know, there are going to be thousands and thousands of pages of documents and the fine things underneath, right? Right. And then there's the, the science. That's the science part. Then the art part is the intuitive, the instinctive. You know, just trying to think how things are going to go, you know, looking out and trying to say, all right, how does this, you know, think? And then, you know, and here's the thing, you never know for sure. I think you also wrote in maybe your company newsletter one time about the psychology side of investing. Is that what you're saying the art is right now? Or is that? Art would be the human nature part. Okay. Which, and in human nature, so the thing about investments is two parts. There's the business, the economics. The metrics, KPIs. But then there's the human nature side of things. How are people going to react? You know, what's going to happen? So for instance, if you don't think psychology has anything to do with economics, when people are not comfortable, they're worried, Mm -hmm. they spend less. Mm -hmm. You know, consumer confidence, how much is that psychology? People are happy and and they're looking at their investments and they're looking at their 401ks and things are going okay. They tend to buy, you know, another refrigerator, maybe a second, another car. So you're talking about the psychology of like the public in this instance. I thought you meant like the psychology of a potential customer of yes. a business who might buy a widget or not. Like I'm doing a deep, we're doing a deep dive in autonomy right now. But part of that isn't just the technology, but it's also, are people going to be willing to sit in a vehicle that they aren't driving? That's a psychology question. Yes, I look at all that. So mm-hmm. so, so macro and micro. So, so yes, absolutely. So I'm looking at the macro, but also when you're looking at individual companies and saying, okay, so for instance, some retail stocks, I just sit there and say, I don't know if it's a fad or not. And the question is, you say, is it going to be a fad? I said, I don't know if it's a fad or if it's going to be a brand. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, I don't know. I can't tell. So, so, so I say, all right, well, I'm not going to do that. But, but TJ Maxx, they're selling different items. Costco is, isn't one brand. Costco sells in bulk. They get a membership fee. You go in there, you got, you know, buy big cases of things in I there. I go once a month. I can't get out of there for less than $400, even if I only have like five things on my list. Yeah, no. And so the, the model I like, I just can't tell when I go into another brand, like, you know, some female clothing store or some shoe store, and this going to be hot, and this, this, you know, this new shirt's going to be good. And they could be big winners. I'm not saying they're not. I just can't tell, so I say I, I you just— You stay away from those. I'm going to stay away from that. I don't have to do everything. Yep, that's, absolutely. That's, well, that's part of your focus. You know, we, we need to be focused. I'm not the best at focus. Uh-huh. Well, we all, we all try to be. Let me ask you about this. I mentioned politics, but this isn't exactly a political question. We've had a good run in, in the economy and in the public markets for several years now. Do you care to speculate, like, how far we are, are into that run? Are we— near the end. I know timing is hard to do, but Very it's hard. been a long up time. Yeah. So the, the market bottomed, let's say March of 2009. Mm-hmm. So we've had 10 fairly good years in the public markets and fairly good years in the the economy. Unemployment all time low. Unemployment's low. Interest rates are low. Um, there is a couple concerns I do have. What are those? My biggest concern is the amount of debt. U.S. debt, or by consumers, you mean? Consumer debt, mm. U.S. debt, world debt. So we have around $20 trillion of debt, but that's not accurate. We have another $80 trillion of unfunded liabilities, things we owe, mm-hmm. like health care and social security. Right. So, so where I come from, if I owe it and I didn't borrow it, but I still owe it, so if you lump that in together, we have $100 trillion. 
I can't even fathom what that number is. There's a lot of zeros, but it's all you have to do is look at Greece and look at Spain and look at mm-hmm. where my parents are from in Italy. Iceland about 10 years ago. All this debt. So there was a there was a study that I actually shared from Harvard with our great Senator Portman, and he was very smart on economic issues. Senator Rob Portman, he was the budget director in the Bush White House. Yes, trade ambassador, Dartmouth, University of Michigan, very smart. If you were hiring a man, forget politics for a second, if you were hiring a man to do the job, you would hire Senator Rob Portman. He's a terrific guy. Spectacular. He's fantastic. He did what he does. And I shared it with him and Speaker John Boehner, and a study at Harvard studied world economies and said, okay, what existed when these economies did well? So forget about politics. Forget about my opinion, right. your opinion. Right. A lot of times people say, oh, is that your opinion? I said, no, I'm, I'm trying to learn what worked. What were the components of the good economy? The economies that did the best cut taxes and cut spending and cut borrowing. So we have cut taxes. That's a nice start. We haven't cut borrowing or spending under any administration. Correct. So under President Trump's administration, our spending hasn't been cut. President Obama, our deficit went up more than all presidents combined. Under President Bush, our deficits went up. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are spending more money than we take in. Now, some people don't think that matters. I think sooner or later, that is a problem. So, so I think, back to my question, is it sooner or later that this positive rise after early 2009 ends? I don't know. And I think that anybody... But that's why we invited you on this show, is so you could tell us all in the crystal ball what you're seeing. Well, I'm cautious, but on the other hand, unemployment is low. Interest rates are low. Those are good things, right? Those are good things. Right. And I believe that the trade war gets worked out. Mm -hmm. I've thought that from the beginning. I think it's just the way our president negotiates. A trade war is like two people fighting and saying... You got hurt worse than I got hurt. My daughter said that's not a word. I said it means worse than worse. But do you win if you hurt me more than I hurt you, but we're both hurt? And so ultimately with the trade war, China gets hurt more than we get hurt because we buy more from them, right, than they buy from us four to five times. But then it will hurt us because then we got to pay more money to buy theirs, and it's still going to affect us. So, so everyone gets affected. It's just a matter who gets affected more or worse, that is a concern, but I think that gets worked out. Do you know what issue, economic issue, that I'm starting to think about more than I used to? I think maybe the biggest consumer economic issue of this generation is going to be student debt. Do you think about that very much? Because I really feel like the model's broken because we have so much government loans available that the universities keep raising tuition, but then the tuition as high as it is, is not affordable still with all these students, and we want to get everyone college educations. And I, the, the statistics of these young professionals and how many years it takes to pay off their student loan debt, it's, it's paralyzing. Do you think about that? Yeah, it is a problem, Adam, but I think the biggest problem we're going to be facing in America is America used to have the biggest block of middle class. And, and, and we had a few poor, a few percentage less percentage, and a few rich. Mm-hmm. What's happening now, the disparity between wealthier and, and poor is growing bigger and bigger and bigger, okay, for a lot of reasons. And so technology is good. On the other hand, in the future, jobs that are less skillful will be done by computers and machines. Yes. Just like in factories. 
And so the disparity is going to continue to grow. And it's important that everybody is better off. Yes. And that's, I think that's a problem. And I think our debt is a problem. Those to me are the two largest problems that we face. Regarding, and I agree with you, regarding your concern for automation and machine learning and job displacement because of that technology, I had on uh, our Up To podcast last season, Cheryl Palmer. Oh, you met Cheryl. Yes. CEO of... Very impressive uh, lady. Yeah, CEO of the seventh largest home builder in the U.S. And she shared that they turn away profitable projects because they don't have enough laborers or tradespeople to do the work. Selling the project is the easy part. I'd love to see a renaissance of tradesmen uh, or, you know, those types of skilled workers learning how to build things because we're still going to need more homes. And If you talk to people, so if you talk to our mutual friend, Governor DeWine, as he was campaigning, what he heard from business people and the top one, two, three things more than anything else, that they couldn't find enough skilled help, enough mm-hmm. trained help mm-hmm. that could also pass drug tests. Right. And, and so that, that is a concern. And so think about this. A lot of times people say, oh, you're a conservative, or you're a liberal, or you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we, any, everything affects all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens is that you, you want everyone to, to improve their life, right? You know, you know, so, so the other day there was a great speaker that we went to hear, and I, and I said, you know, what we really want is not a redistribution of wealth. We want a redistribution of opportunity. Mm, I like that. Do you mind sharing who said that? Or? No, it's something that I, I shared. I may have heard oh, it somewhere. Okay. You know, but, but you gave is, the speech. No, it was a speaker. And afterwards, I was going to ask a question. It was at the City Club. Okay. And he was an incredible speaker, right? An incredible guy. Yeah, I think you mean Peter Georgescu, who is just phenomenal. Yes, incredible. He wrote a book called Capitalist Arise that's getting a lot of attention on Wall Street and in the mainstream press. Super impressive. Yeah. He gave a super talk, and, right. and he's concerned about these things. His life story is remarkable. It's an amazing story. There's no there's no question. And I think he's dead on right on things he's writing about in his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, Ray Dalio is also concerned about mm-hmm. that. Now, Ray Dalio is worth $18 billion. And he's friends with Ray Dalio, by the way. Well, he is very much concerned about the same thing that, that, that I just brought up. And I think what happens is if people would look at everybody and say that somebody's son, daughter, child, mother, brother. Um, and, and I've shared this with people, right? And it's maybe not that cool to say, especially when we talk about investments, that we probably need love more than anything else than we need in the world. More love would cause, cure more problems than anything. But debt is a big problem. The disparity between rich and poor is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Those are big issues, right? And also we have to have well-trained workforces. People have to, you know, Yeah, that's what learn. I was speaking of, right. Yes, those are all important items. Let me go back to the first question, Umberto, that I planted the seed on uh, early, which was for the 30-year-old listening who wants to delve into investing, what should she be thinking about just starting off? We've talked about some complicated strategies, um, but what are the basic rules starting to put a little bit of money aside each month towards your savings? Well, I think that's one of the first things. You have to spend less than you make because you can't invest if you don't start off saving. You can't start off saving if you spend more than you make. So you start off saying, all right, you have to pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. So you have to sit there and say, all right, right from the top, I need to put some money away. You can't say I'm going to put it away once it's left. So pay yourself means give yourself some savings, not buy more music. 
Yes. It means, okay. it yeah. means you know, right out of your paycheck or right out of your earnings, you know, right. as much as you can. Into your 401k or whatever you can. As much as you can. Of course, if you can put it in 401k and you get a match and it's tax deferred, put as much as you can there before you do anything else. It's a no-brainer. But a lot of young people don't do that. I didn't do that right away when I started. Well, the first thing is spend less than you make mm-hmm. and learn how to save. Then you have to invest, right? But But you have to save first. Initially, I would not suggest you buy individual stocks. 90% of the professionals do not beat the indexes. Well, that's that's a great point. I'm glad you said that. Don't start with picking stocks when you get going. You can play around a little bit and do some, if you will, but, but, but what happens is that knowledge is so important and you have to learn it. If 80 to 90% of the professionals on Wall Street do not beat the indexes and you're not a professional, statistically your chances of doing well mm-hmm. are not going to be good. Right. So so you No can, offense to all of our friends who are wealth managers. You can start off with ETFs. You What's can, an ETF? Exchange traded funds. So they're very, very low expenses, but 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 they're not managed. They're just a strategy. So 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 you know you're gonna buy maybe the S P five hundred or five hundred biggest companies or the Russell two thousand or they're just a strategy, but there's not management. Now mutual funds is another way. It's a collection of public companies. A collection of public companies where there's management involved and there's strategy involved and someone's running and them. There's usually a fee for that, right? Beyond what you There's invest. a fee. And of course, you don't want to buy the loaded funds where you're paying a big commission and the expenses that are in the 12B1s, 12B2s, or the 12B, whatever they're called, I think 12B1s, yeah. right? But good managers of the good funds and good managers of the investment houses long-term should outperform, but but 80 or 90% don't. It's very hard. So you start off just saving money, and then after you get a discipline to save money, start investing in some mutual funds or some managers or some investment companies. My first mentor, you mentioned mutual funds a few times. My first mentor in investing, his name's Chad Brenner, he taught me, Adam, if you want to invest in mutual funds, just to give you a different thought here, but I think you're going to like it. He said, just invest in Berkshire Hathaway B shares. It's 70 or 80 companies. There's no management fee. It's broad-based industries. I thought that, so I took that advice. So I'm a very modest Berkshire Hathaway in fact, B share shareholder. I, I happen to own Berkshire Hathaway for years, but let's talk about Berkshire as an example. They have not beat the S&P index in the last 10 years. Yeah. Now think about it. One of the greatest investors, if not the greatest investors, and I, part of it is he has too much money, but he has not beat the S&P index. So when Warren Buffett hasn't beat the S&P index in the last 10 years, okay, it's not easy to do, right? Now, again, he's very close to it, but it is like a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. There's other companies like that. It isn't, they aren't the only one right. where you can buy their company, and when you buy their investments, you're getting a collection of businesses. Yes. So there, there's different ways to do that. The one thing I found is, again, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know people who do know. If you read, you can learn a lot. And if you ask questions, the other thing I find out is very successful people, you'd be surprised how often they want to help somebody younger. They want to teach you what not to do. That's a good point. And so ask, don't be afraid to ask questions of your more senior or more veteran investors. Someone who's super successful, it may be a friend of your, you know, maybe one of your friend's dad or could have been somebody that you, you That's know, why we brought baseball. you in here because I wanted you to share. Like, I think the question about what are you reading or what the person who's starting out should read is really important, Umberto, because like for me, different uh, scenario, but I don't know anything about wine. So every time I try to learn about wine just to be conversational, 
any magazine I pick up or any website I go to, there's all this assumed knowledge that I, it's like so intimidating to get started. I feel like a lot of people feel that way about investing. So that's why I think your your thoughts about the Wall Street Journal or the Motley Fool really matter because you know, where do you get started? Where is it not intimidating? And, and, and you just said maybe just asking an expert. Yes, I would say, you know, the Wall Street Journal and Barron's would be my first two. Yeah, Barron gets pretty heavy. You can get heavy, but there's a lot of little short tidbits, right, okay. and, and little yep. things you can read. And, yep. But also, there's just so much material out there. So reading is one of them. Now, some people have no passion for investments. Right. Where they're just not fascinated by it. It just doesn't turn them on. It isn't fun for them. So for me, it's it, it's it's a combination of a hobby because I, I like it. It's, it's also a way I socialize because I have a lot of friends then and we share ideas and we bounce things off each other. So it's a social thing. It's a hobby. It's it's a passion. So And it could, could be fruitful. Well, it could be, but I don't happen to like fishing. I don't like it. I, it's nothing wrong with yeah, you like it. I don't I, golf. I don't golf. I don't have any interest in trying golf, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't have any interest in most of the things. I go to sporting events. I have a hard time even paying attention. Not, not, and I have nothing against it. So for me... I'm unusual because most of my friends that are, are running their own businesses or that have been blessed with some success hire professional managers. That's what I said to you earlier. Hire consultants. Right. I have different people that do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm much more active probably than— You're very hands-on with the investment considering you have a different line of work with your day job, so to speak. Yeah. I call that my, my day job is what my business is, my morning job, right? And then I have sometimes my, my third shift, which is the community and the political and, right, right. And, and so forth. Now, now as a grandfather of six and two more on the way, wow. I've had to cut back on some of that at nighttime because then I'll never see my, 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 my grandchildren. Children and, mm -hmm. and I don't want to do that. I did that earlier when I was working, you know, 16 and 18 hours a day. I went to as many as five events in a night. Three was nothing. So so, so you have to balance it. And by nature, I'm not balanced. Mm -hmm. But there's so much material out there to read. There's so much you can learn. Now, if you're not passionate about it and you don't want to learn about it, then, then learn how to pick the right mutual funds or the right ETFs mm -hmm. or have a professional that can help you. Well, it's clear you're passionate about investing and about sharing your lessons. I'm passionate about talking to accomplished people like you who are so humble and authentic. So I really want to thank you for spending time with us today. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for our final episode of this special mini-series. Thank you, Adam. Before we conclude today, I want to go over what I think are my top takeaways from today's discussion with Umberto. Number one, integrity and a proven track record are vital when investing in or with someone. Number two, each of us should commit to lifelong learning. Number three, when starting out in your career, you should pay yourself first. And by that, Umberto meant you should save a little bit of money every month so that you in the future can invest it. Number four, when you begin investing, don't start by picking a few stocks. Instead, you should begin with exchange traded funds. And number five, look to ask questions of those who are your senior or are experts because people usually do like to share their expertise with folks younger than them. I'm excited to let you know that for the first time, we are going to be introducing our digital mailbag. We love receiving feedback from you, our loyal listeners. And today, I would like to read a wonderful note I received on LinkedIn from Chris Dobbins, who is the director at the Gaston County Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina. Mr. Dobbins wrote, I recently discovered your podcast and I look forward to pairing the leadership strategies in your podcast with those in my dynamic organization. 
I think they will be a great fit. And thank you for sharing. Kind regards, Chris Dobbins. Thank you, Mr. Dobbins. And to all my listeners, I encourage you to please contact me with any feedback and also ideas on future guest speakers. You can contact me on the UpTo Foundation website or on social media. I sincerely hope you enjoyed today's episode and I encourage you to subscribe to UpTo on your favorite podcast app. UpTo is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a special thanks go out to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and the audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm Adam Kaufman. I'd like to thank you so much for listening to the Up 2 podcast.